Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Amen. Bless the Lord. With the help of the Lord tonight, I'm simply preaching about a straight gate and a narrow way. And if you four musketeers keep talking down the back, I'm going to sit you with your parents, okay? (laughs) Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your presence here. We ask you, Lord, that you would speak to us through your word. Lord, have your way in our hearts. Lord, bring the change that you desire in each of us. Lord, help us to be vessels of clay. Lord, that can be fashioned in your hand to become vessels of honor for the master's use. Use me tonight, Lord, to minister your word. Have your way in us and through us, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. The Lord spoke of two gates and two ways. A wide gate with a broad way and a straight gate with a narrow way. One leads to life, the other to destruction. The broad way speaks to us of a lot of flexibility, of being able to be guided by our own personal preferences, of avoiding the things that we do not like and choosing a path that is based solely on the things that bring us pleasure, to satisfy the lusts of our flesh. The gate for this Broadway is so wide that the reality is it doesn't really even need a gate. You can access the Broadway from pretty much anywhere you like. There are no entry requirements. There are no restrictions. You can have it your own way. And the two ways, the broad and the narrow way, are both very contrast, contrasting and they, they are so opposite to each other in almost every detail and yet there is one thing they have in common. Both of them have a single destination. There are not options, but they both lead to one single destination. One leads to life and the other to destruction. So even though you can get on the Broadway very easily in whatever manner you please, the final stop, the final destination is set. It cannot be changed. It is set forever. It is the eternal destiny of everybody that lives and walks on the Broadway. Now you may notice, and there's a slide to help us with this, that in this passage the word straight is spelt differently to the way that we would normally use it. It's not a typo. But when we speak about a straight line or a straight arrow or making something that is crooked straight, we use the spelling that is on the bottom with the G and the H. But when it is spelt S-T-R-A-I-T, it doesn't mean a straight line or a straight road, but rather it means something that is narrow, something that is limited, something that is constrained. And we see this example uh, used to describe bodies of water that pass between two areas of land, such as the Bass Strait, which is the body of water between mainland Australia and Tasmania. Now, if you and I were on a little boat in Bass Strait, it wouldn't look too narrow or too constrained. It's about, I think, 300 kilometres wide. It's still a big body of water. But compared to the Pacific Ocean or compared to the Atlantic Ocean or any of the other great oceans on the planet, it is quite a restricted space. So the gate or the entry to the narrow way is tight. It is contained, 
It cannot be approached from our own personal preferences, but it has boundaries. It has requirements. It has restrictions. And the scriptures tell us that whosoever wants to come to Jesus can come to Jesus. And I'm glad for that, that the scripture says whosoever wants to can come to him. I'm glad for that tonight because that includes all of us here. But it does not say that those whosoever's can come however they like. Scripture lets us know Jesus said that he was the door. Not a door, but the door. He said, if any man wants to come unto the Father, they have to come through him. What does that mean? I think most of us understand it tonight, but it means that before Jesus came, before God was manifest in the flesh, there was a barrier that separated men from God. The incarnation, the revelation of God in flesh, provided an access point. It made a way where there previously was no way. And so what Jesus was saying was that because he had come and because of what he would achieve through his sacrifice on Calvary, there would now be an opportunity for men to be saved and to know God. He was, in fact, a wonderful fulfillment of the type of the blood on the doorposts in the book of Exodus at the first Passover. To fulfill that type in Jesus, we have the lamb, we have the blood, and we have the door. Amen. Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3 that the only way to enter the kingdom or the only way to pass through the door was to be born again of water and of spirit. Amen. It is still the only way to enter in. It is still the only way to pass through the straight gate. It is the only way to be saved. You must be born again. Jesus said to Nicodemus, this is the only way that you're going to enter in. He's not saying this is my preference or I'm giving you the preferred model. He's saying if you're going to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again of water and spirit. We need to understand, if only as a reminder tonight, that it is a straight gate, that it is a very precise commandment, but that it is also a wonderful thing to be born again of water and of spirit. And when we enter through that straight gate, it places us, on a narrow pathway. The restrictions don't stop at the gate, but they continue on the pathway. We learn to walk as Jesus would have us to walk. We learn to lay aside the things that will hold us back, things that will hold us down, things that might pull us to the left or to the right. And as we covered in Sunday school this morning, we must be willing to endure some things, to experience some hardship and to overcome opposition. Because the word narrow doesn't only refer to a lack of width, but it also includes difficulty and trouble. Amen. But we thank God tonight for His grace and for His mercy, because without it, we would have no hope. I hope you understand that tonight. Without the grace and the mercy of God, we would be wasting our time. But it is a grave mistake to think that grace and mercy thereby equates to an easy and a broad way. That would be a mistake. Amen. Grace and mercy are in fact designed to bring us to the straight gate and to help us to stay on the narrow way. They are not to be understood that we just get a get out of jail free card, but rather we need them to stay where he would have us to stay. The prophet Isaiah prophesied about a highway that the scripture said would be called the way of holiness. 
And he said that the unclean would not walk on it, but that it would be where the redeemed would walk. It's the narrow way. It's the narrow way that Jesus spoke about. Again, we must not misunderstand the grace and mercy of God to mean that Jesus is dumbing down his holiness or what he requires of his people in any way, but rather the grace and the mercy of God is provided to make it possible for us to be the people that Jesus would have us to be. You need to be involved. We've covered that a lot lately. You need to make decisions. You need to make choices. You need to set some things aside. The Lord will not do that for you. But as you respond to him, his grace is flowing into your life. His mercy is flowing into your life. His power and his wisdom is flowing into your life and enabling you to be and become what he would have you do be. But you are involved in that process. We are not vaccinated with the Holy Ghost against our will, but we seek the Spirit of God. We desire that He would fill us with His Spirit. Amen. Brother Turkington mentioned this morning about how there is no condemnation to those who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. He spoke about the example of those who are enveloped in the Lord. And that was a wonderful example, but we also need to recognize that that is not speaking about some warm, fuzzy feeling about the goodness of God. I don't believe that's what Brother Paul was implying. But if we want Jesus to be in us, if we want him to be enveloping us, then we must be on the narrow way. Because the simple facts are that to get off the narrow way is to get on the broad way. If you get off the narrow way, you are by default now on the broad way. And if you read on in Romans chapter 8, after it talked about there being no condemnation, it makes it very clear that there is a body, that there is an old man that must die. It is not saying easy believism, it is saying you've got to die to sin. Amen. And we, we love to baptize people in Jesus' name for the forgiveness of their sins, and we should love that. We should get excited when somebody's buried in water in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. We should also get very excited when somebody receives the gift of the Holy Ghost speaking in other tongues. Amen. That that should excite the people of God. But we must also take care, and this is really where I'm getting to tonight, that we do not undervalue where that begins. We must also remember to get excited when people repent of their sins. Amen. Because that is the first base. That is where everything begins. Amen. The Lord has been talking to me a lot recently about repentance and how sometimes we can be guilty of failing to recognize its importance, its power, and its continuing necessity. Amen. Repentance is always going to be a part of our lives. When we understand it, and I hope I'm going to be able to help us understand it maybe a little bit clearer tonight, you'll realize it's got to be in every part of my walk with God. Amen. It is where everything begins. And if we rush somebody to a baptistry and we bypass repentance, we should probably just give them soap because that's all they're going to get is a bath. Without repentance, baptism in Jesus' name as hard as it sounds to say, is invalid. Amen. When we look at Scripture from the last chapter of the book of Malachi in the Old Testament until the first chapters of the four Gospels, there is a period of around about 400 years of silence. Israel's spiritual condition is so lifeless 
that it almost seemed as a nation that heaven was closed for business. 400 years of what Bible scholars call the intertestamental period of silence. Bible scholars always like big words with lots of syllables. There were occasional individuals who still had hearts for God. People like Anna, the prophetess. Simeon, the old man, those two particularly stand out to me that were waiting for the Messiah to appear. But as a nation, Israel was basically void of God for 400 years. And then one day, one day an old man who has never ever been a father has an angel appear to him while he's performing his priestly duties in the temple with a message about a son that he and his barren wife were going to have who would be called John and he would come to be known as John the Baptist. The angel said that this boy would grow up and that he would have the spirit and the power of Elijah, that he would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, that he would cause the people to prepare the way of the Lord. In Matthew chapter 3, we get a glimpse of what he was doing. It says in verse 1, In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. This fulfillment of prophecy has been 400 years in the making. The nation of Israel is bone dry and God sends one wild-eyed prophet dressed in camel's hair with a leather girdle to try and reignite that fire that's long gone out. And he has one message. He's like an evangelist. He's only got one message. His message is repent. That's his message. Repent, repent, repent. That's the only notes that John the Baptist had was repent. He said, you need to repent and get ready because he said, there's one coming after me. He said, I'm not even worthy to carry his shoes. He said, but he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And he said, what do we have to do to get ready for his appearance? We have to repent. He baptized people with the baptism of repentance. But before he was willing to do so, he was looking for evidence of sincerity. He was looking for evidence of genuine change. That's why when the religious decided that everybody else was doing it and they came to him to be baptized, he said, you need to go away. He said, you need to go and bring forth meat. You need to bring forth fruit that is meat. In other words, your actions need to demonstrate that this repentance is, is real, that it is sincere, that it is coming from our hearts. And in the very next chapter, Jesus comes on the scene and guess what his message is? Matthew 4 and 17, and from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yes, you must be born again of water and spirit to enter the kingdom. If you don't know that, I don't know where you are when we preach and teach. You must be born again of water and spirit to pass through that door. But it is repentance that brings us to the door in the first place. Repentance is powerful. I'll say it again. Repentance is powerful. Hallelujah. Sometimes repentance is described as including an intellectual change. In other words, a change of our view, how we see things. 
It can include an emotional change of how we feel about things. That's not talking about warm fuzzies. That's talking about coming to terms with the fact that I am a sinner and how I feel about that. It comes with a volitional change or a change of purpose and action. So basically, repentance is a change of mind, heart, and direction. But it is also said to include recognition of sin. We have to know what sin is. Jesus said, I didn't come for the righteous. He said, I came to call the sinners to repentance. He wasn't saying, there's some of you that don't need me. He was saying, there's some of you that don't know that you need me. (laughs) He said, the ones that know they're sinners, they're the ones I'm reaching for. We have to have a recognition of sin. We have to have confession of sin. That's not in a little box with a lattice between you and some guy wearing a robe. That's between us acknowledging to the King of Kings that we have disobeyed him, that we have broken his law and that we are guilty of sinning. There needs to be a contrition or a sorrow, a genuine regret for sin. And there is also needs to be very importantly a forsaking of sin. There needs to be a demonstration. There needs to be action that that backs up what's coming out of our mouths. If I'm saying I'm repenting, then my behavior needs to model what my mouth is saying. If I go out of the house of God having repented and no action changes, then my repentance needs to be reviewed. At the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul writes about how important it is that we separate ourselves from sin and from sinful practices. He talks about not being unequally yoked together with unbelievers. He talks about how light doesn't have any fellowship with darkness. He talks about how righteousness and unrighteousness are not compatible with one. He's saying there's got to be a separation of these things. They cannot be together. And as he continues writing into chapter 7, remembering that he didn't put the chapter break there, that came long after he wrote the letter, He says that we need to continue in 2 Corinthians 7 and 1, I believe it is, to continue to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting or completing holiness in the fear of God. He's writing to people who are born again of water and spirit. And he's saying as we continue to walk with God. We've got to continue to cleanse ourselves. We've got to make changes as he guides us and directs us and teaches us of the flesh and the spirit. Why that holiness would continue to be perfected in us. And then, I'm not going to read it all for the sake of time, but he goes on in that chapter to say how he had previously written to them a very strong letter addressing some issues that were in the church. And he said... He wasn't very gentle. He said, I know that those things made you sad, that I wrote those things made you sorrowful. He said, I'm not sorry that I wrote those things. Thanks very much, Paul. You just told us you hurt our feelings and then you said you don't really care. But why did he say that he wasn't bothered that it made them sorrowful? Because in 2 Corinthians 7 and 10, he said, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, But the sorrow of the world works death. He said, that's why I'm not sorry that I wrote it. Because in the sorrow that it stirred up in you, it brought you closer to God. He said, godly sorrow works repentance to salvation. And he said, we should never repent or regret that. We should never be, never regret that we've repented of, he said, worldly sorrow never produces change. 
So in other words, we end up staying dead in our sins. So the important question tonight is what is godly sorrow? What is godly sorrow? Sometimes we think that godly sorrow is recognizing that we've broken the law of God. And I think that's a part of it, but I think that's incomplete. Godly sorrow is also going to go on. The Bible says the godly sorrow will go on and produce that opportunity for salvation. And I believe it's not just when we recognize that we've broken his law, but it's also when we come to the realization, when we grasp that our law-breaking actions nailed him to a cross. That's godly sorrow. When I begin to personally identify with being the reason that he was crucified, that's godly sorrow. You see, breaking the law is just a dry, dusty thing. But when I begin to sink my sin, my actions, the things that I did, put him on Calvary. And every time I fail him, it's still the reason that he was there and I've got to go back and thank him for his sacrifice again. On the day of Pentecost when the church was born, Peter preached to them about what they'd seen and heard when people were filled with the Holy Ghost and spoke in tongues. But as he went along, he shifted from explaining the prophecy of this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel and he shifted to talking to them about how who Jesus really was and who was really responsible for his death. He told them, you crucified him. Now, nobody in that crowd held the hammer or the nails. The Roman soldiers did that. Nobody in that crowd on the day of Pentecost physically participated in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But he was letting them know it was your actions and your sins. And when the crowd made a personal connection between their actions, their sins, and the crucifixion, when they connected themselves with the reason that he died, then they asked the question, men and brethren, what shall we do? And the very first word out of Peter's mouth was, Repent. Then Peter said unto them, repent, repent, repent. You see, if you have godly sorrow, if you connect your sins with Calvary, as horrible as that is to think about, it's going to begin to work repentance. Or in other words, when you look at the meaning of that word worketh, it means it's going to bring it about. It's going to accomplish. It's going to perform. It's going to achieve a turning around and a turning away from sin that will bring you close to the door where you can have your sins washed away in Jesus' name and receive the promise of the Holy Ghost. We sang it tonight. I think we might have sung it this morning as well. I cast my mind to Calvary. That's godly sorrow. It's not, oh, I broke some law in a dusty old Jewish book from the Old Testament, but I cast my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me. And it's not just for me, it's because of me. It's because I sinned, because he was able to look ahead to the joy that was before him. That's why he endured the cross, because he knew that we would sin. And he paid for it before we ever did it. But when he paid for it, he knew we would do it and we needed it. So he took care of it 2,000 years ago. I cast my mind to Calvary. And tonight I want to challenge somebody when you are considering yielding to temptation. 
when you are wondering whether or not you should give up certain actions or behaviors, don't just think about a law written somewhere in a book that you might be breaking. Think about a cross. Cast your mind to Calvary. Try and get a picture of his sufferings and connect yourself to that and take responsibility for that. Hallelujah. Why is that so important? Because this is what Paul said. Paul said that after godly sorrow works repentance unto salvation, there's something that follows that. In the next verse, in 2 Corinthians 7.11, he said, For godly sorrow worketh repentance unto salvation. Then he said, For behold this selfsame thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort. What carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. Yea, what indignation. Yea, what fear. Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. In all things you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Now that's, that's King Jimmy English. The New Living Translation says, Just see what this godly sorrow produced in you. Such earnestness. Such concern to clear yourselves. Such indignation. Such alarm. Such longing to see me, the one that had written them the strong letter. Such zeal and such readiness to punish wrong. You have showed that you have done everything necessary to make things right. Godly sorrow should produce a passion and a desire to continue to pursue Jesus Christ. To continue to pursue laying things aside, cleansing ourselves of all filthiness of flesh and spirit. When godly sorrow is working, when I connect my wicked actions with an old rugged cross and realize that he paid the price of my sin, that ought to cause me to be desperate not to have him crucified again because of my actions. Not that he can be crucified again, but you get what I'm saying. Godly sorrow produces a desire to eliminate all traces of sin within ourselves and to purify our hearts, our minds, and our lives. It gets down, it really gets down to it. It's to make the cross worth it at a personal level. Godly sorrow means that I want him not to have wasted his sacrifice in my life. I don't want my own stubbornness my own hard-heartedness, my own sinfulness to remove the power of Calvary in my life. I want to say, Lord, I'm thankful that you died for me. I'm thankful that you're willing to pay that price and I want to maximize the reason you did that. I want to give you that joy that was set before you by taking advantage of your grace and your mercy. The cross was enough. The empty tomb was enough. But if it's ineffective in my life, it's on me. It's not on him. The power of the cross isn't able to achieve what it set out to achieve. That's on me. Amen. I can't say, Lord, you didn't quite have what it took. He gave everything. If it fails, it's because of my actions, because of my choices. The blood of Jesus, we know, was shed for sin, but it was also shed for healing. And it was shed for wholeness. Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 23, he said, the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. The very God of peace set you apart to belong to him completely. Your whole spirit, soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
what that tells me, and I, I hope I'm on theological sound ground here, I believe I am, that means that when I have the godly sorrow that Paul wrote about to the Corinthians, or when I have a proper view of the cross, the first thing that happens is it will cause me to repent for my sins, that I might be forgiven. But it also means, you see, repentance is more powerful than that, because it also means that when I see Calvary, I'm also willing to surrender hurts, heartaches, and pains. Because what he did was not just for the eternal destiny, it was about wholeness in body, soul, and spirit. It was about redemption. I'm not saying that these bodies are eternal now. They're not. But he's provided healing for our bodies. He's provided remission of sins for our spirit. He's also provided healing and wholeness for the wounds that we carry deep down within us. Amen. Sometimes they are wounds that have taken up residence in the deepest part of our spirit and they have been festering year after year and they remain unchanged because we do not recognize that if we are going to repent completely, that means that every part of me, every part of me becomes surrendered unto him. Not just my sins and my hurt, my pain, my brokenness. Every part of me needs to be yielded to Him. Because when I look at Calvary, if I want to say, God, I want everything that you've provided on that cross. It's not just the saving of my soul, which obviously I understand is the most important thing. But He wants to give us wholeness in our minds, in our hearts, in our souls right now. That's why Jesus said in Luke 4 and 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. That's the salvation part, the gospel to the poor. But he said he's also sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised. Jesus was declaring in the fulfillment of that prophecy from the book of Isaiah, I didn't just come to take away sin. I came to heal broken hearts. I came to set captives free. I came to make the blind see. And I came to bring freedom to the bruised. This is all part of the straight gate and the narrow way. You might not think it is, but I thank God for the new birth. I thank Him For the straight gate, I thank Him for being the door whereby we can be saved. I am so grateful. I am not grateful enough that He washed away my sins. I do not have the capacity to be grateful enough for the fact that He washed my sins away. But now there's a narrow way that He's calling me to walk on. Now I've got to take care that I don't stray, that I don't get off and trip and stumble off the highway of holiness. There's a straight gate. And a narrow way. Repentance brought me to that gate, but it's also a part of me staying on that narrow way. Amen. In all my years of walking with God, when people choose to leave the narrow way, yes, sometimes it's because they just want to sin. Sad as that is. But very often in my life and my experience and my conversations with people, it is because of an unhealed broken heart. It is because of a prison that they never, ever left. It is because of blindness that was never given to him. There was no Bartimaeus, Jesus, their son of David. Have mercy on me. 
it's because of bruises in their souls that were never set free. Repentance is bigger than we realize sometimes. I thank Him for His salvation. I thank Him for the new birth, but He wants to heal hearts. He wants to set captives free. He wants to open blind eyes. We do not realize how much those things cripple us spiritually. Rob people of their joy. Help them to struggle more than they should in their walk with God. Because they've never realized that that's a whole part. If I'm going to surrender to Him. David said in the 51st Psalm, if I could have a musician tonight, please. As a part of his what? His Psalm of repentance. When he sinned. He said in Psalm 51 and 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, that will not despise. He's talking about letting everything go. Lord, all my brokenness, all the hurts, all the bruises. I watch people walk with God. It's my job. I'm sorry if you feel like that's a bit invasive. I watch people walk with God and I see struggles. But I know there are things there that if they would yield them to him, those struggles would be finished. I'm not talking about heaven and hell. I'm not talking about losing salvation, although these things can impact us eternally. But there are things, he said, I came to heal broken hearts, to set captives free, open blind eyes, set people at, you know, it's inter- the expression is to set them at liberty that are bruised. So that tells us that a bruise in your spirit makes you a prisoner. Liberty is freedom. So that means that bruise that has not yet been addressed has caused you to be bound and held captive by whatever it was that caused it. And so often we are afraid to bring it to him, but he's saying if you'll, godly sorrow works repentance unto salvation, to the saving of your soul. But he said, I want to set you up. I want to sanctify you holy body soul and spirit every part of you he he doesn't do a half job he didn't say you know calvary was tough but you know it only managed to get part of the job done he came to do the whole job stand with me if you would tonight hallelujah it's a straight gate and a narrow way i plan on getting to the end of that destination i plan on making it all that way Sometimes it seems really narrow. Let's be honest. Sometimes, Lord, this is tight. It's hard. It's difficult. It'd be a lot easier just to to go the broad way. But we've got to remember, where does the broad way go? To destruction. There's a narrow way that leads to life. I believe we need to be reminded tonight of the power of godly sorrow. The power of repentance and its ability to set us free. You see, when we repent, the power of sin is broken temporarily for us to have opportunity to come to the door and to go through that door and then we engage in having our sins washed away and when we're filled with his spirit we get that power that is ongoing that will sustain us all the way till Jesus comes back that earnest that deposit of our inheritance but there are sometimes people that walk with God that are crippled that he does not want to be lame people that are so badly bruised. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He 
because he has anointed me. I want to set those people free, he said. I want to heal broken hearts, release prisoners. I'm not just going to save their souls. I'm going to sanctify them unto myself. I wonder if you would lift your hands with me tonight. Say, God, let your word search my heart, Lord. We thank you for the new birth. We thank you, Lord, for having our sins washed away in Jesus' name. We thank you, Lord, for the promise of the Spirit of God, Lord, that we receive speaking in other tongues as your Spirit gives us utterance. But, oh, God, it's not complete. God, there's healing, there's wholeness, there's liberty, there's sight that you want to give us, Lord Jesus. Lord, if we would bring ourselves to you and say, God, I surrender afresh. God, I repent with every part of me, Lord God. I offer you access. God, I don't want to be crippled. I don't want to be lame, Lord God. I want to be whole. I want to belong to you with every part of me. And Lord, when we struggle with temptation, when we struggle with sin, we feel like giving up, Lord, help us to cast our minds to Calvary. Help us, God, to remember the cross and say, Lord, help me to keep going. Help me, Lord, to make it worth it still. Lord, I want Calvary to still be worth it in my life. I don't want your sacrifice to be wasted, Lord God. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus.